ask you to open up to Proverbs chapter 15. Uh, the Lord pulled an audible on me last one night, yesterday morning, I guess, whatever day it was, and I wrestled with him for a little while, and I obviously was ready to keep going through the book of John, and then this thought struck me during the men's meeting, which had nothing to do with what Kevin was speaking about at the men's meeting, uh, and I couldn't get it out of my head, so I said, all right, Lord, I'm just going to go with it. So Proverbs chapter 15 is where we'll start. Uh, Say amen when you're there. All right, all right, all right. So um, for many, now I know, for many, it's the most wonderful time of the I know for many it's like the most wonderful time of the year it is joy to the world it is merry christmas it's fa-ra-ra-ra-ra I know it's like everything exciting and loud and that's good you get together with family and friends you stuff your face you say I'll, I'll, I'll to go on a diet in a week I get it you know it's a it's a wonderful time but I do acknowledge and I'm aware of uh, for many it's the most difficult time of the year. Uh, it's a time when depression is very high. It's a time when loneliness seems to get intensified. It's a time for many of a blue Christmas and not always a merry Christmas. And in Proverbs chapter 15, you're going to see Solomon, the king, is going to speak about the importance and the impact of, quote, a merry heart. A merry heart. Proverbs 15, verse 13. A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. Verse 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Chapter 17, chapter 17. One more verse before we pray. Chapter 17, verse 22. Chapter 17, verse 22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. And uh, through that king of Israel, through this king of Israel, the Lord mentions a merry heart Four times in your Bible. It appears four times. And Solomon is the writer all four of those times. Three times, it's in the book of Proverbs. One time, it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, what's the significance of something being mentioned four times? Well, when God is mentioning something four times, he's trying to establish a truth. He's bearing witness to something. He's laying these four corners down so you could build a truth on it, like four corners of a foundation. And this fourfold mention is going to establish God's blessed truth about a merry heart. A merry heart. A merry heart. And at a time when we're all wishing each other Merry Christmas, and I'm okay with that, and at a time when some saints might be hurting... I like to see what God has to say about a merry heart, a merry heart. And jump in. I do want to say hello. Pete's got a visitor, Ron. I just want to say hello, Ron. Just acknowledge you. Thanks for being here today. And uh, I hope you all get a blessing. I hope this kind of encouraged. I've been thinking about it for the last few hours, day. So I pray it's a blessing to you. I know the Lord called an audible. I'm trusting God wants us to hear about a merry heart today. So let's pray. Father, I love you today. I thank you today. I 
praise your name today, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Pray, Lord, you to lift up the hands that hang down, Lord, and I pray you'd encourage those that need to be encouraged, Lord, and, and just insulate those that might be on the mountaintop, Lord, because everything to everything there is a season. And, Lord, we go up and we go down, Father, but you're with us all the way, Lord. Your years change not. There's no end to you, Father. That's why we're not consumed. Thou art the same. And I'm thankful, Lord, that we can always lean on you, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley. And I pray you'd strengthen your dear people, Lord. Some are sick or recovering from surgeries, watching from home. I pray they might be able to get a blessing. And I pray your church would be strengthened and your Holy Spirit would encourage us and lead us to Jesus Christ today, Father. I love you. Thank you in advance, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 15. Look at verse number 13. Proverbs chapter 15. Look at verse number 3. We're just going to look through these four mentions here and just walk through it. Number one, the question is, why do some people lose a merry heart? I mean, people generally don't want to be down. They don't want to be heavy. They don't want to be sorrowful. They don't want to be broken up like this. Why do some people lose that merry heart? Why does a merry heart sometimes see, seem evasive when you're going after it? Look at Proverbs 15, 13. A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. You know what I want to say first is everything about your outward life stems from your inward heart. Everything that comes out here is the result of something that's happening in here. And when we say heart, we're not talking about the ventricles and the aortas and any of that stuff. We're talking about your thoughts. We're talking about your spirit. We're talking about your mind. We're talking about your spiritual heart. And everything about your outward life is a reflection and a manifestation of something that's going on in your spiritual ticker. Amen? When your heart is merry... It says your face, your countenance is cheerful. Everything on the outside is looking up. When your heart is merry, your outward life is looking up. You smile more, right? Your countenance gets lifted up. Literally, your your cheeks and your muscles go up, right? You look up. I challenge you to look up and smile at the sunshine and try to feel sad. You couldn't make yourself cry like this if you wanted to. Something about that mind-body connection. When your inside is looking up, feeling up, your body seems to be perking up. But when your spirit is heavy, this is not a message of reproof. This is a message of encouragement and exhortation. But when your spirit is heavy, your outward life, your outward countenance is weighed down. You walk differently. Your face, right? Your, Your smile goes down. You frown and your countenance seems to droop. Go to Proverbs chapter 4. You say, why are you saying that? To emphasize the point, my brethren, my beloved brethren, that that is why God and Proverbs, those all books, Proverbs 4, that's why Proverbs warns you to guard your heart, to watch over the soil that gives root to everything else that affects you. To weed things out and put things in so the right stuff grows in your mind and your thoughts and your spirit. And so the wrong stuff doesn't crop up and take root. Proverbs 4.23, read it. Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Everything about your life comes out of your heart. If that's true, man, you would seal your attic 
to make sure the cold doesn't infiltrate. You're going to like watch the seals on your windows so the wrong stuff doesn't get in. You're going to look out. If you have a garden, you're going to make sure, right, Matt Califano, I saw you walk in. You're going to watch out and make sure you got the right minerals so those skip laurels grow really good in your backyard, right? You're going to watch over that soil so you get the right stuff growing up in a few months. Guess what? If everything comes out of your heart, wouldn't it make sense to guard your heart so your outward life is manifesting the stuff that you want it to manifest? You're not putting the wrong thoughts in. You're not putting the wrong ideas in. You're not letting the wrong stuff stay there. You're plucking up before it develops a strong root system. Cultivate that garden inside of you because my brethren, I love you. It isn't the storm without that's going to pull you under. It's the storm within that will sink you. If you're strong within, nothing outside of you can knock you down. But it's when the storm is raging inside of you that you always feel like you're drowning. Look at um, Proverbs chapter 15 again. How come some people, think about this, how come some people who seem to have nothing can be so happy? People lived through the Depression, man. They were on bread lines and they came out and they were the greatest generation, they call that group of people. And how can people like us who seem to have everything be popping pills and have nervous tension and be overwhelmed with all the stuff we're overwhelmed with? It's crazy. I don't know what's going on. Proverbs 15, 13. Look at the next verse there. Proverbs 15, 13. I want to read it again. You're going to memorize some of these verses. It says, the, um, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart. The spirit is broken. Oh, answer that door. By sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. What is the burden that weighs you down and breaks your spirit? What drags us down? That verse tells you right there. Sorrow. Sorrow. We are walking in a veil. This world is just shrouded with sorrow. And you say, where does sorrow come from? That's very simple if you read your Bible. Sorrow comes from sin. It might be your sin. It might be somebody else's sin. It might be Adam's sin. But the source of all sorrow, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, is sin. I don't mean to oversimplify, but it's that simple. Sorrow comes from sin. Genesis chapter 3 shows us that in verse number 16, the first time God ever mentions the word sorrow in his Bible, it comes immediately after Adam let sin into our world. There was no sorrow before sin. But as soon as sin reared his ugly head, God jumps right in there and says, listen, Adam, listen, Eve, you're going to have sorrow. What you've unleashed is going to be a plague for millennia to come. And we're living in the wake of that. We're living in the, in the, in the, in the aftershadow of that. Think about it. Think about the things that make people sorry, sorrowful, sickness physical death. Why do people get sick? Why do people die physically? What is, the, what is the reason? The poison is sin. It's coursing through our veins. That doesn't mean if you get sick, that's because you stole something. I'm not saying that, but we've got this law of sin in our members. We've got in our flesh what dwells, no good thing. There's something wrong with our blood. We've got sin still inside our physical bodies. Even if we're saved, you know what? Sometimes it shows up as leukemia. Sometimes it shows up as physical death. Sometimes it's just, it's just the wages of sin is death. 
right? It's just, it's, it's working in our members. I don't like it any more than you do. That doesn't mean somebody like a dear sister, Patty Buscemi, got sick because of sin. No, but it's just the world we live in. It's the effect of living in a world that has been plagued and infected with this poison called sin. It ruins everything. That's why we have cemeteries. That's why we have nursing homes. That's why we have hospice. That's why we have funeral parlors. That's why we go to the gravesite and weep. That's why. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for opening the door to that villain. Thank you for letting that monster rampage our existence. Yes, by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sin. That wasn't God's idea. That wasn't God's plan. God says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. God never said, okay, and I'm going to bring forth funeral homes. I'm going to bring forth, we'll we'll call them urns. No, well, cremation or burial. No, God was like, God wanted people to live forever with him. But sin destroyed it. Why does that happen? What do we weep about? We weep about people that we've lost. Amen? We, We weep about people that maybe get a bad diagnosis. You say, why did that happen? Somebody else's sin. Somewhere you trace it back, it's sin. It's that sting of death is sin. It's there. Now, God takes the stinger out for the people that are saved, but it still hurts. It still hurts. Still hurts to say goodbye. I mean, it could be, I mean, it could be a guy that you know is in heaven, a sister you know is in heaven. They could be the greatest Christian in the world. You know what? It still hurts. Still hurts to not see them anymore. Still hurts to not like have their face in front of you. It still hurts. And you know what? That's human and that's natural. There's nothing. But I'm just trying to show you right now. Again, this is not a reproof. I'm just trying to show you. Trace it back. Where did that come from? It came from sin. Somewhere it came from sin. You say, why do hearts get broken? Why do lives get shipwrecked? Some of you got a broken heart. Some of you have dealt with some circumstances this year that have just plain out sucked. Right? I could say that from the pulpit. I could say that. Right? It just plain out stunk. You know what? Just trace it back. Be a detective. You know what? Somewhere it was sin. Your sin, somebody else's sin, the sin of this world, but somewhere sin got in there and destroyed something. The problem is sin. It's a destructive force. You do well not to trifle with it. You do well to stay away from it. You do well to hate it as much as you hate anything on this earth. Because that sin, if it gets a root in your family, gets a root in your mind, gets a root in your body, guess what? It's going to destroy something, and it's going to lead to more sorrow. We deal with as much sorrow as as in this world when we're trying to do right. We're still dealing with the effects of sin. Hey, don't let that monster into your living room. Don't let that monster into your thought life. Don't let that monster into your family. Keep it at bay. It's a monster. You know what sin does? Sin takes something that's supposed to be beautiful spoils it with sorrow just like sticks you know it's like it's like baking a cake and you mess up the recipe it's like baking a cake and you use like old baking soda or something just take something that's supposed to be sweet and delightful and something you can enjoy you know what sin does it makes it gross it makes it spoiled it makes it rotten so you want to take a bite and you're like oh oh you were supposed to be enjoying it And sin destroyed it. Yeah, that's the word, gang. It's sin. God called it, wrote about it thousands, 6,000 years ago. He called it in his Bible. It's sin. The wages of sin is death. Look at Genesis chapter 3. You want to see what sin does? Look at Genesis 3.16. Unto the woman. Here you go, ladies. He said, 
This is post-fall. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. You know what sin does for the lady? Sin taints the gift of life with sorrow, pain, travail. If you've given birth, can I get an amen, right? My wife had three C-sections, right? It's painful. It's onerous. We call it labor pains. We call it, when God's likening what the world's going to go through in tribulation, he likens it to a woman in travail. He says, let me find an example that shows how tough it's going to be for Israel to come through that tribulation and be born as a nation. He says, oh, oh, I know what it's like. It's like a woman having labor pains and screaming out in agony to deliver this man-child that's supposed to be coming into the world. You say, why'd that happen? Sin. You say, what if Adam never sinned? I guess it would have been pain-free childbirth. I guess they could have just been multiplying and replenishing the earth and just kept going and going and going. Nobody but two, I'm done. Three, I'm done. You know, nobody would be saying that. They'd be just going because, hey, this was easy. Let's do another one. They just keep going and going and going if there was no sin. Look at Genesis 3.17. Let's get to the guys now. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed, Matt Califano, don't amen too loud, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Listen, man, sin curses the earth. Adam had to keep. God told Adam before the fall, dress and keep the garden. That was Adam's job. You know what sin did? Sin took that job that God gave Adam, and he made it difficult. It was going to bring forth thorns that cut you, thistles that prick you, and sweat that was going to break your back so that you come home at the end of the day and you do nothing but eat dinner, kiss your wife, and go to sleep. That's what he said the sin was going to do. I'm legally blind in my left eye because when I was eight years old, a thorn bush ripped across my face and tore out half of my eyeball. I know a little something about thorns. That wasn't there before the fall. That's because of S. I N sin destroyed everything, man. It destroyed everything. And my brethren, if your spirit is broken because of sorrow, I'm telling you right now, sin is the culprit. It's your sin. It's somebody else's sin. It's Adam's sin. But sorrow is here because of sin and hearts are breaking because of sin because that's what brings sorrow. That's why we lose our merry heart because we're walking in a world. It would be like, try to walk through this room without oxygen touching you. It's impossible. Try to walk through this world without the effects of sin touching you. It's very difficult, albeit impossible, because the wages of sin is death and the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's why we lose our merry heart. Go back to Proverbs 15. You with me so far? Go to Proverbs chapter 15 and let's look at something else here. So what happens? What happens when you lose a merry heart? What happens when you lose a merry heart? Proverbs 15, 15. What happens when you lose a merry heart? All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. 
When you lose your merry heart, you know what happens? You lose your perspective. It changes you when your heart breaks like that. It changes you, and sometimes it really affects the way you see the world around you. Please notice verse 15 again. Look at the first half of the verse. It says, all the days of the afflicted are evil. When you lose your merry heart, you know what happens? All you see is the glass half empty. You just see yourself as afflicted. And when you feel like you're afflicted, all your days become evil. Everything is difficult and torment and heartache and hardship and woe. But the converse is on the end of the verse because the book of Proverbs is all about contrasts and contrasts. And he says, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. When you have a merry heart, all you can do is count your blessings. When your heart is right and full, you know what happens, man? Every bitter thing is sweet, man. To the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. It's like you look around, oh, I can walk, I can breathe, I can see, I can fly. You know, I don't know, Peter Pan, I don't know, but you just, you just get so full, it's like you see joy in everything. But man, when that frown gets turning on you, when that smile gets turned upside down, man, everything is a problem. Everybody's a problem. Everything is evil. Everything is hard. Verse 15, again, he says, it's just all the days of the afflicted are evil, man. When your heart is heavy, all you see is affliction. All you see is evil. All you see is sorrow. That's all you're looking at. That's all you become about. Life gets hard. You just feel so tormented all the time. Nothing's good anymore. You can't enjoy anything anymore. Everything is evil and rotten because you're so afflicted. I think about like putting on glasses, right? If you put on glasses with blue lenses in them, guess what? Everything you look at is going to be blue. And if sorrow is the veil upon your heart, all you're going to see is evil. All you're going to see is problems. All you're going to see is shortcomings. All you're going to see is what's wrong, what you're missing, what you're lacking. And I'm telling you right now, if you stay there, you might miss all the blessings that are around you. It changes your perspective, not for the better, but for the worse. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look over there. Let me show you about a guy that had everything named Solomon. Man, this guy had everything. You wanted money, he had money. You wanted stuff, he had stuff. You wanted entertainment, he had entertainment. He had everything, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at verse 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at verse 4. Ecclesiastes 2, 4. I made me great. This is Solomon writing. He says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me, he's not, he's not Irish, right? I planted me vineyards. No, he's not saying that, right? It's just a different way of saying the sentence. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. This guy's got like a, an aquatic system. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. He must have been a good master because they were having generations of families that wanted to stay and work for Solomon. Keep reading. Um, 
Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. This guy had it, man. You want to see a three-car garage detached, heated with a Benz in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the driveway? Forget it. He had 10 times that. Keep going. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers. I mean, he had them performing right there for him. And the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained in me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. He said, man, if I wanted it, I got it. If I saw it, I took it. Money was not an object to King Solomon. Right? Keep going. And that uh, all, and he says, uh, verse 10, I withheld not my heart from any joy. My heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Verse number 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity, emptiness, meaningless, no profit. No substance. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Jump to verse number 17. He says, Therefore, I hated life. Could you imagine saying that? Could you imagine a guy saying that? I know you think all the Pope folks that have the Pope, all the folks that have the big houses in Rumson and everything. I know the people you see those big houses when you drive through certain areas, you think, wow, they have it made. Solomon had it made, and he says, I hate my life. I, some of us, I know some people have worked for some rich people, and they're, they're not as happy on the inside as it looks on the outside. And I'm not hating on having things. I'm just saying, here's a guy who literally just told you, I've got everything, anything I wanted, I had. I tried to fill my days with joy and laughter, and I hated my life. What a perspective to be changed. Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought, catch that phrase, under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Verse number 23, 23. For all his days are sorrows, and his travail, grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Solomon had everything, but he was miserable because his heart was vexed. Because his heart was heavy, his heart was broken, his spirit was troubled. He couldn't enjoy anything around him. His perspective was so changed. He looked at everything and he was like, is this all there is? Another song? Another meal? Another palace? All right, I guess so. Just miserable Solomon. And God put that book in the Bible to show you that even a man like Solomon, when he gets away from God, his head gets turned upside down. Because Ecclesiastes is Solomon out of fellowship with God, away from God. He's not the same Solomon that wrote Proverbs. The Solomon that wrote Proverbs says, oh man, God is great, and this is great, wisdom is great, wisdom excelleth folly, all this great stuff, all that wisdom. The guy that wrote Ecclesiastes is miserable. He sounds like an atheist. He sounds like an existentialist. He sounds like a lot of us. Just looking at everything going, what's the point? Because his perspective got so turned around. Because his heart got so messed up. Man, like Solomon, you can be in the Garden of Eden 
and get hung up on the one tree God didn't give you. You can have everything and be so vexed over the one thing God didn't give you. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Let me show you Genesis chapter 2. Again, this is not a message of rebuke. I'm trying to help you and help me. I told my wife this morning, I said, this message is just for me. And I know preachers say that, but I mean that. I'm preaching to myself today. God has worked me over on this today. And if you can get some of the the blessings that drip off my plate, I hope you enjoy something. If not, you know, Merry Christmas. I'll do something different next week. But in Genesis chapter 2, I want to show you something in verse number 8. Genesis 2, 8. Familiar, but I I want to show you something. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow, watch it, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Can I tell you something? The Lord made a whole lot of trees that looked good and tasted good. We think it was just that one tree that Eve saw that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. No, every tree God made in front of Adam, he said, that's a good-looking tree. You can eat off that tree. There were scores of good-looking trees and good food trees all over that garden. And in verse number 16, God gives Adam free reign over all that bounty. Look at it, verse 16, he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden, and in verse 8 and 9, they were good to look at, and they were good for food. Of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. Man, you can freely partake of all this bounty I've given you, Adam. Look at all this goodness, Adam. You can go get this tree, get peaches that probably you never got from Georgia in your life. You can go over here and get watermelon as big as your aunt's head, right? And just be like the greatest thing in the world you ever tasted. Sweet and juicy and, man, delicious. You can go over here and get tomatoes as big as a soccer ball. I mean, it must have been unbelievable. And he says, it's all free. It's free. It's free. Just take as much as you want. There's just one little butt. Just one but. Verse 17. But of the tree of the garden, right? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God gives Adam reign over everything. Just one condition. Just one tree. Just don't touch that one tree. You know what? I don't want you to touch that one tree, Adam. It's going to ruin everything. It's going to kill you, Adam. And I don't want you to die. Man, well, Lord, why'd you have to put this tree here then? Because I got to give you a choice. I don't want you to be a robot, Adam. I got to at least put, I got to put that there so you could choose me or choose the devil. Choose me or choose your own way. So he put that, he's like, I got to you all this, man. Orchards and scores of stuff. It's just, on. I bet it just went on and on and on in that place. And he said, look, there's this one tree over here. And just, just don't eat from that one tree. It's, you'll be good. You'll enjoy. You'll go out. You're going to populate the universe. It'll blow your mind. Pain-free childbirth. You just throw the seeds on the ground, and it'll grow up, and you can just keep it without any effort or any sweat. No thorns, no thistles. My goodness, what it must have been. Just this one tree. Just don't take from that one tree. That's all, Adam. And in Genesis 3, verse 1, mm, mm. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Interesting. See what word he took out? What happened to freely? Didn't God say you could freely have it? Oh, try and make God look like a meanie. Making God look like a bad man. 
took out the word freely, took out a whole bunch of stuff, added some stuff in there. And all the devil had to do was sour their perspective about that one tree that they couldn't have. God had given them everything. If they lifted up their eyes and changed their perspective and looked at the bounty of the garden, they said, man, all this is ours? But instead, the devil just got their gaze fixed on that one thing God kept from them, that one thing they couldn't eat, that one thing they couldn't partake of and couldn't partake of because it would kill them and it was good for them not to partake of. And all he did was start planting those seeds and run that stuff through his head and run that stuff through their minds. And you know the story. And here we are with funeral homes and cancer wards and death and sorrow and heartache. Because why? Because man couldn't be satisfied with the bounty God had given him. And he just had to get hung up on that one thing. Just that one thing just ripping at him and grating at him. It's like Solomon. I got all this stuff, but I'm just vexed. I'm troubled because I'm troubled by this thing. It's just, oh. Can I tell you something? Is that you? Has God given you a bunch of stuff? Has God given you bounty? Has God given you plenty of stuff? And you're going to miss all of it because there's that one thing that you don't understand why God hasn't given it to you. And you're going to let the devil beat you up and work you over because there's that one thing that he's kept from you. You say, oh, but Pat, you don't know the thing. I probably do. I probably struggle with the same thing. We all got our one thing, right? We all got our one tree that God has kept from us for a reason to prove us and try us. And God's trying to see if he'll throw the whole thing overboard because he didn't give you that one tree. This is a test. It was a test for Adam and Eve, and it's a test for you. You're going to sell out on God and dip the colors on God and throw God overboard and throw the Bible overboard and give up on church and give up on prayer and give up on stuff and reject Jesus Christ and think God's a meanie and let the devil make you think God's a meanie because he gave you everything but one tree. Quiet. Think about it. It's okay to get down. We're human. It's okay to cry. I do. It's okay to be sad. We're built that way to grieve. I'm not hating on that. But if you stay down, when God says, okay, it's time to get up, the devil is going to get an advantage over you. Because if you stay down, when he says, get up, now listen, you got to grieve for things. You got to take that time and grieve for things. I get that. But there's things that happen in your life and you take that time and after you're done licking your wounds and God says, all right, son, get up. And you stay down and you live in that affliction and all the days become afflicted and evil. Guess what? The devil is going to get an advantage over you because you're down. It ain't all bad. It ain't all bad. Life is not all bad. It isn't all wicked. It isn't all evil. There's goodness and joy and peace and fruit and stuff that we miss. Because we're so consumed with that one tree that he hasn't given us. And I'm getting mad at myself, not at you. I want to justify God and shame myself. Because I can look over this congregation sometimes and see miracle and miracle and miracle. You know what the devil do to me? But this one's not here. I'll be honest with you. Ask my wife. She won't tell you. But I'll go home and I'll be like, where was that one? What's going on with this one? And it'll work on me and the devil will box me over and beat me up and I'll see it coming, I'll see it coming, I'll go, oh man. And I'll miss all of you. And that's wrong of me. I confess my fault. It's wrong of me to miss the forest for that one tree. Because God has been good. God has been exceeding abundantly good. 
And it's time all of us rise up and shake off our guilty fears and proclaim that, God, you've been good to a sinner like me. You've given me more than I deserve. Because you know what I deserve? The backside of hell. That's what I deserve. And God says, I give you peace and joy and forgiveness and life and hope and a church family and ministry and purpose and something to do and good brothers and good sisters and food to eat and some money in your pocket and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the truth of God and all the things he gives us. And that split foot monster is going to sit on your shoulder and tell you, but he didn't give you this. Bless God and shame the devil. Say, you know, when that voice rises up, just go outside and start praising God out loud. Start listing all the stuff that God's done for you. And bless God and shame the devil, even when you don't feel like it. Because that spirit, that hurt, just likes to stay there and consume you. And just let you sit in like a cesspool. And, and sometimes, like I said, you got to lick your wounds and heal and grieve and get strong again. But when God says, okay, now rise up one more time. And you say, no, I kind of like it here. I like my pain. I, it's who I am. It's how I identify. You know what's going to happen? The devil's going to put his foot on your neck and keep you down. Got to get up when God says get up. If not, you may be walking in the Garden of Eden and drive yourself from paradise. You might, you might miss everything that God's got for you and wind up driving yourself from paradise. Because if you insist that the glass is half empty, doesn't that insult the God who fills your cup? You go, oh, I'm missing this, and oh, I'm missing that, and life is so hard, and this is so this, and everything. I know, but the Bible says the way of transgressors is hard. Are you a transgressor? Your way is supposed to be Jesus Christ. Right? In him, all the promises of God are yea and amen. Right? It's supposed to be a little different for you. Why would anybody want to get saved looking at your life, dragging your feet like an Eeyore? Right? You need to pick up your face like a Tigger. And man, Tigger, the wonderful thing about Tigger is that Tigger's a wonderful thing. And kind of say, hey man, it's good to be saved. It's good to know God. It's good to be, you know, have a hope that extends beyond this little life. You know, sometimes when you want to cry in your beer, the Lord will just give you something. And you know the day... And nobody was, this is a reflection on me, not my son. But the day my son Christian made the basketball team is the day his former roommate, Mikhail, was buried. And there we are, you know, excited about him making the basketball team. And it was an exciting thing to make the team, to walk on and make the team. I'm thankful for it. I appreciate it. But you know what? It was like the Lord said, just in case you're going to complain about something, son, there's another mother that was in the same room as you with her boy about the same age and they're burying him today. And I don't understand how that all works. I don't know why one gets one. I don't understand God. I don't understand. But I'm just thankful for his goodness, thankful for his mercies, right? God will do things like that sometimes to give you a perspective shock. To go, let me not, let me not lose my perspective. You know, when, when you being sad becomes afflicted, you might start accusing God. Be careful. Because when you're afflicted, that means somebody is doing something to you. All the days of the afflicted are evil. That's what we read before, right? So when you start, it's okay to be sad, but when you start turning that sadness into, oh, woe is me. You know what you might start doing? Hey, why'd you do this to me? Because somebody's got to be doing it to you. 
And pretty soon, if you start tracing the ladder high enough, you might start going, why, God? Why'd this happen to me? Why'd you do this to me? And when that happens, man, just be very, very careful. Because God didn't probably do it to you. Somebody did it to you. Some wicked sinner might have done it to you. Your own stupidity might have done it to you. But please, just wind that finger down before you start pointing one at God. Just do yourself a favor. Because the minute you start saying, why, God, why, he may open up to the book of Psalms and say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you might remember the one that was forsaken for you when he was innocent, pure, and guiltless, separate from sinners, and he faced the cruelest death known to man when he didn't deserve it in your place. So before that finger starts cranking up and saying, God, what? Just do yourself a favor and back the truck up. And don't turn your sadness into affliction. It's a season. To everything, there is a season. You can have your highs and your lows. You're going to go through them. Charles Spurgeon faced such bouts of depression, he couldn't get out of bed. And he was one of the, he's called the Prince of Preachers. So, hey, it doesn't mean you're going to walk around with a grin on your face all the time, but don't turn your sadness into affliction if it's not supposed to be affliction. Because if you go back to Proverbs 15 15, Proverbs 15 15, look at the end of the verse again. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. When your heart is merry, you know what you see? You see all the good God's given you. You see, man, there's so many trees, Lord. There's so many trees you've given me. It's okay. I know I don't understand, and maybe I would like that tree, but you know what, Lord? You've been so good to me. I'm going to trust your goodness when I cannot trace your hand. It's okay you've kept me from that one tree. I don't understand it, and my heart's broken a little bit, God, but you know what, Lord? I know you know better than I do. So you know what, Lord? I'm just... That, that opens up. Then you start to see, wow, look at all that I do have. It changes your perspective. But when your heart gets heavy, it's easy to lose that perspective. So I just caution you, brother, sister, just be careful. Be careful. Proverbs chapter 17. Hurry with me now. Proverbs 17. So what's the benefit of having a merry heart? I mean, why should you want a merry heart? Why is this something we want to pursue Proverbs 17 22. a merry heart doeth good like a medicine but a broken spirit drieth the bones a merry heart is like good medicine for your spirit your soul and your body listen to this I got this from the American Heart Association not a Bible college all right not, not, not a church, the American Heart Association, they write this, quote, Thomas Jefferson once declared that without health, there could be no happiness. Science now shows the opposite is true too. Happiness is an important component to maintaining physical health. In fact, that mind-body connection goes deeper than many people realize, and a troubled mind can contribute to health problems. I continue to quote, we know that up to 80%, 80% of visits to primary care doctors are due to conditions that are caused or exacerbated by unmanaged stress. 
said psychiatrist Dr. Francoise Aiden, director of the Connor Integrative Health Network of University Hospitals in Cleveland. She continues, being happy doesn't just make us feel better, it improves our health. It helps us eat healthier, be more active, and sleep better. And because happiness leads to healthier behaviors, it helps stave off high blood pressure and excess body fat, resulting in lower risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease. Good preaching, Dr. Aiden. It sounds like they're catching up with the Bible. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. I'm not saying when you get down, you're going to get cancer. I'm not saying that. Sometimes you go through things because God's got a plan that I don't understand. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this. When your spiritual heart is sound and healthy and strong, it looks like some other parts of you seem to function better as well. Very interesting. Proverbs 17, 22 says, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. A broken spirit withers what's supposed to be the strongest part of your body. Your skeleton, your bones are supposed to what? They're supposed to hold you up, let you be able to stand, help you be able to walk and hold this whole sack of skin together, right? That's like your structure. That's your kind of like your frame. Look at Proverbs 18, 14. Right across the page, maybe. Proverbs 18, 14. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. You know what? When your spiritual heart is strong, when your walk with God is strong, when your relationship with God is strong, you know what? You can bear the physical weaknesses. You can go through those hospital stays. You can make it through those funeral parlors. You can take those bad reports and keep on keeping on. You know what? The physical weaknesses, your doubt, your guilt, all those things about this frame of dust that we struggle with. When your spiritual life is healthy, guess what? You can go through those physical ordeals and trials down here. But a wounded spirit, who can bear? But when your spiritual life kicks a hit, when your heart gets broken, man, you just fall apart. You can't stand anymore. You can't walk anymore. You just, that spirit of heaviness just drags you down. And he says, man, if your spiritual life isn't there to hold you up, what's going to hold you up? What's going to sustain you if your walk with God and your relationship with him isn't a rock that you can lean on? Sadly, The saddest example of that truth is my own father, who's been dead for many years now. Dad died in 2008. But in the fall of 1994, my father, my dad, got diagnosed with kidney failure. Had to go on dialysis and all this stuff. And and then years later, he got cirrhosis of the liver. So every few days, he was going to dialysis. And every every month or so, he was getting tapped to drain his belly for the cirrhosis. And can I tell you, as bad as that was, the bitterness just destroyed him. I mean, from the fall of 1994, my dad was a happy guy. My dad used to joke around and play games with us. Man, as soon as he got sick, that was all over. I mean, my dad, sadly, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to speak ill of my father that passed, but I mean, even the nicest recollection of him would be hard-pressed to ignore the fact that the bitterness of his heart was worse than the illness of his body. After he got diagnosed, he was a broken, broken man. He just had no peace. Everything was wrong with everything. He just sadly died a miserable, unhappy individual. 
And I'm not, I'm not mad at him. I'm not angry at him. I didn't go through the things that he went through. But it was really sad to watch this one strong athlete, this one strong man that struck fear in everybody's heart, just shrivel and emaciate and just spirit, soul, and body just be so weak at the end. I don't know what his final thoughts were, but it's just it's sad to think about. And I say that to say this because this verse, Proverbs 17, 22, he'd stay up at night because he didn't sleep well because he was just so messed up. He was so troubled. He didn't sleep well. And he'd sit in his spot at the kitchen table and he'd doodle. He'd write poetry. He was a guitarist. He'd write songs. He'd do all this stuff. Nothing gave him joy. Grandchildren didn't, you know, you know, a little bit of smile here and there. But it was just, my memory of him for the last 16 years of his life was largely one of bitterness frustration, sorrow, anger, just vexation of spirit. And one night, what I would do is when I got saved, I would leave things in his spot. Bible verses, Bible books. And he read them. He said, I read it. Right? And, he read, and one night, I think I wrote on a, a napkin to leave at his spot. Proverbs seventeen twenty two: A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. And standing here today, I don't know if he ever took the medicine. I don't know. But you know what I could do? I could preach to the living. Will you take the medicine? Will you take the medicine and try to let go of some things that'll help you keep going on for God? Because you know when you find a merry heart, you know what you could do? Those bones get strong. You know when those bones get strong? You could stand again. And when those bones get strong, you got structure again. You get your frame back. You know what you could do? You can walk again. Some of us who had surgery, I had surgery on my knee. I couldn't walk for 10 weeks on crutches for 10 weeks. You get strong again. Things get built up again. Hey, you know what the Bible says? You get healthy again. Leviticus 17 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You know where your blood is made? In your bones. I've learned that, unfortunately, over the past you know, year and a half. Your bones are the factory that makes 95% of your red blood cells, your platelets, your white blood cells. All that stuff that's running through your body now, that's keeping you alive, is coming from your bones. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dryeth the bones. And if your bones aren't healthy, how can your blood be healthy? And if your blood's not healthy, what kind of life can you have? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood that comes from your bones. And a broken spirit dries those bones. And dry bones are brittle and easily break. What kind of life can you have if there's no strength there? How can you stand if your bones are weak? How can you walk with God without a merry heart sometimes? Finally, Ecclesiastes chapter three, uh, 9. Sorry, Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So how, do you get, how can you get a merry heart if you've got a broken spirit? Or maybe if it's not today, maybe tomorrow when you get a broken spirit. How do you get that merry heart? How do you find it again? Anybody want that? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, keep going. Stay with me now. Ecclesiastes 9.7. Now this one's going to be a little tricky for a second because this verse, whenever there's fourfold mention in the Bible, one of them is different. Right? When God sets up a four. So we had Proverbs, 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 and now we've got Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is kind of like the one that's a little different. Because when you lay those four corners down, one, two, three, the fourth one has got to be the cornerstone. And when they used to lay houses, that cornerstone becomes the reference point by which we measure and interpret the other three. So this one's going to be a little different, and it's going to shed light on everything we've said so far. Watch. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. 
Solomon writes, a jaded, worldly, philosophizing Solomon writes, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. What? Drink wine? Get your merry heart from the bottle? This verse is the cornerstone, the reference point to build God's truth. You know what we're going to see right now from this cornerstone? That the world will never give you a merry heart. All it can offer is a temporary buzz. That's all the world can give you. Now listen, you know what Solomon's problem was? There's a phrase that pops up in the book of Ecclesiastes 27 times. Under the sun. He got his eyes off of God up there and got his eyes on everything down there and Solomon got turned inside out where he thought that something down here he could take to give him the merry heart that he had lost and he couldn't find it down here and you can't find it down here and that's the reference point for everything we've said so far. That merry heart that we long for is not found under the sun. Look, 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 look. Ecclesiastes 9.3. I'll show you some of those sayings. There is an evil done. There is an evil among all things that are done under the sun. Right? Look at verse number six. He says it again. Six. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Verse nine. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he hath given thee under the sun the sun. Verse number 11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Does that sound like Bible? You're just a victim of time and chance? No, that's a backsliding Solomon. That's a philosophizing, atheistic, jaded Solomon writing. And in verse number 13, he says, This wisdom have I seen also under the sun. Solomon foolishly thought something under the sun could give him a merry heart. And it's typified by wine. That's the best the world can give you to cheer you up. <laughs> right? The Bible says, what? Give wine to a, uh, to, 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 to a sad heart, sorrowing heart, and those that are ready to perish. Give them wine to try to make them forget, right? That's the best the world can do. And the best the world can do can't really help you. It could just give you a temporary buzz. The world try to fill things in there, get you intoxicated with their philosophies and the drunk of the drink of this world, but it can't help you. Four times the Bible connects the world's wine with being merry. You know, it's God's trying to tell you something. Four times God connects wine with merriness. You want to hear some of them? You don't have to turn there. There's a lesson in all of them. The first one is in 2 Samuel 13, 28. It's about Absalom. And Absalom's plotting to kill his brother. And Absalom says, hey, when he's merry with wine, whack him. You know what I take away from that? That what the world gives you, the devil will get an advantage over you. The devil will destroy you if that's what you're leaning on to make yourself merry. He's just waiting for the opportunity to crack you if that's what you're getting full of. The second time is in Esther. It's King Ahasuerus. You know what? Ahasuerus gets a little drunk and he starts flaunting his wives. And that's why Vashti takes off and the whole kingdom gets turned upside down. You know what that tells me? If you're leaning on the world's drink or the world's whatever to help you through your life and get you through things and be your source of joy, you know what's going to happen? Like King Ahasuerus, you're going to make a fool of yourself. The third time is here in Ecclesiastes 9, and the last one is in Ecclesiastes 10. Look at it, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19. A feast 
is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Oh, that's a jaded, backsliding Solomon thinking the world can make him happy. God, put that in the Bible as a lesson to you. Don't be like him. Don't walk away from God like him. I think about how many people are turning to the world's bottle to make them merry this holiday season. With the doop de doo and the dickery dock. They're going to turn to, I thought you were supposed to be happy. Why do you need that to make you happy? How come on New Year's, you got to get yourself blasted so that you forget what, the year you just had? I thought it was Happy New Year. But you know why you got to, we know why that's the night that people get plastered? Because deep down you know it's your empty. And deep down you know you don't have joy. And deep down you know another year ticking on the clock is another reminder that you're wasting your life and you don't know where you're going when you die. So you're going to drown your woes and make yourself happy, happy, happy with the world stuff. How many people need a drink from the drunk of this world to get happy? We use those words, right? Happy, lit, tipsy, a little merry. We use those words in that context. Listen. I'll say this and then I'll move on because I'm already making some of you uncomfortable. You say, no, not me. Doesn't affect me. Okay. If the wine of this world didn't affect you, how come you don't drink soda? I will not be brought under the power of any, Paul said. And as a Christian, I should never turn to the world, whatever it is, for joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. He's supposed to be the source of my joy. Go to Luke chapter 12. Let me show you. Let me wrap this up here. Some of you are already done. Luke chapter 12. I'm just saying, don't turn to the world, man, whatever it is. I know I might have stepped on a toe there, but I'm not trying to just point that out. I'm just trying to say, whatever the world gives you, whatever the world says, hey, take a swig of this, just that's not going to give you a merry heart. It's going to give you a buzz. And then you're going to be need something the next day. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 Jesus Christ gives a parable and he says this. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou Fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He says, man, that sounds just like Solomon. I got all this stuff. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Solomon says the same words in Ecclesiastes. He's saying the way to a merry heart is to lay things up above the sun not under the sun be rich toward God lift up your eyes above this mess and that's where your treasure lies that's what will give you that merriness again he says don't be a fool your treasure's not down here your treasure's up there and if the best you can do under the sun is get a buzz why not look to God above the sun for lasting help Go to John chapter 16. Stay with me. I just got a few verses left. Hurry with me. I know the time's getting away from me. I appreciate your attention. I think it might be warmer in here without the heat on. I don't know what's going on. John chapter 16. 
Listen, folks, can I, I want to give you some application now. Let's take that cornerstone and let's apply it to everything we said already, okay? Here's number one, really quick. If your heart is heavy and you're feeling down, lift up your eyes to the man of sorrows who makes an end of sorrows, right? John 16, 22, Jesus is in that upper room. He's getting ready to say goodbye. He's about to leave. And he says to his disciples, and ye now therefore have sorrow. Verse 22. He doesn't rebuke them. He says, I understand you're sad, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man taketh from you. He said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving to break the power of sin at the cross, but I'll be back. (laughs) I'm coming back. All right. I know you're sad now for a little season, but I'm coming back. I'll be back. Don't forget that. Lift up your eyes and remember that from that help comes from the hills. Look at Revelation 21. You want to see what happens when he comes back? Look at it. I know you know it. Revelation 21. But let's look at it together. Revelation 21. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, he's not just coming to break the power of sin. He did that at the cross. He's coming to banish the presence of sin forever. The source of all your sorrow will be done away forever. And even though you don't know the verses, if you're saved, somebody in the inside is going, yes, 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 that's true, yes. Listen, he's going to tell you it's the truth. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Revelation 21 says, and I saw a new heaven, verse 1, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. No more separation between you and God. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them. And look what happens. And be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That is the last mention of sorrow. Once sin is dealt with, sorrow is done away. That's what's coming. You know what? That thing comes down out of heaven. You know what you need to do? Lift up your eyes. See what's coming from above the sun for you. You're going to live there if you're saved. That's your home. That sounds a little pie in the sky. Keep reading in Revelation 21. That thing's got dimensions. It's got materials. If you had the money, the power, and the know-how, you could take the scale that's given in that book and build that city if it was possible. It's got dimensions. It's real. It's coming. Now, Paul says, you may sorrow now, but don't sorrow as others which have no hope. Some of you lost people the last year or so, and a lot of them, I think, were saved. You know what? You will see them again. I know that doesn't make the tears all go away. You know what that does? It gives you the ability to lift up your head a little bit and long for that city whose builder and maker is God. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. I just got a couple of stops left. Ephesians 1. I'm going. I'm hurrying. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Here's another thing. If you're losing your perspective, 
Maybe you need to count your blessings. Maybe you just need yourself. Go take a walk and just start praising God. Start praising the Lord out loud. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. Praise God for this. You say, but I don't feel like it. Try it. Try lifting up your head and looking at your real treasure that's laid up for you above the sun and not what's under the sun. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Your treasure is not down here, church. Your treasure is up there. And I know I can't make you see it, but that's real. And this is temporary. Because in a hundred years, everything you can touch down here is going to be gone. But everything you can't see will still be there waiting for you. I think verse 4 talks about being chosen in him. Man, God put you into Christ. God put you in an airplane that's going to take you to heaven. You got in the vessel that's going to take you to glory. I think verse number 6, he talks about being accepted in the beloved. In verse number 7, he talks about being redeemed and forgiven of your sins. In verse number 11, he talks about having an inheritance. In verse number 13, he talks about being sealed unto the day of redemption. Why don't you open up the treasure chest and see what some of your riches are? It might lift your head up a little bit. It might Open up your eyes a little bit. You know what you got to do like the psalmist? Psalm 103, you got to tell yourself, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's the psalmist telling himself, man, I got to bless God so I don't forget all that God has done for me and all God's got laid up for me because the marketing world is built on making you miserable until you buy their thing. And the romance world is making you miserable until you get that person. And everything about this world is going to try to make you miserable until you grab their bottle to try to give yourself some joy. And then that flees away. And you got to keep coming back for the next installment. God says, oh, no, no, no. It's already up there. Amen. You just got to look and take a look at it once in a while. Go to Proverbs 4. And we're going to end over there in Proverbs and Psalms. Man, if you lost perspective, count your blessings. We could all... We could, let's just get one big praise. Can we get one big amen? amen. All, right. All right, I'll settle for that. That's okay. Right? I know you've been here a while. I'm going to hurry. Proverbs chapter 4. Can I go to that last thing we said? We talked about a broken spirit drying your bones. Can I tell you that if that's you today, if you feel so weak today that you might break, can I just encourage you to open God's medicine chest and just get some strength? Open up that Bible. Look at Proverbs 4. It's a medicine chest, the Bible. Proverbs 4.20 says, My son... Attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. Why? Those words, for they are life unto all those, or life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. This book is filled with medicine to heal your heart. And this church, church in general, is supposed to be a hospital. Amen. This isn't a museum. We don't come. There's, there's Pat, and there's Mike. And there's, you know, Mary, and there are those, it's like a wax museum. No, it's a hospital. Some of you come in broke and limp, and we triage you to try to get some of that medicine into your heart. Why? So you could stand again, walk again, and go out and fight again. It's a field hospital. Psalm 147. We're going to finish in Psalms. Psalm 147. You know what God wants to do for you today? Psalm 147. Praise ye the Lord, verse 1. For it is good to sing praises unto our God. Come on, help me out. For it is pleasant and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. 
he gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. You know, God's a cardiologist. He's in the heart healing business. Your heart hurting? God says, come unto me, all you that labor. I'll help. I'll be the shoulder to cry on. I'll be the help. I got your tears. I'm going to put them in my bottle. They're all in my book. Come to me. I'll give you strength. I give power to the weak and them that have no strength. I increase its strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings and eagles. They shall run and not faint. Come to him. Come on. What are you waiting for? You're going to sit there and stew? Come to him. Look at Psalm chapter 30. You say, man, it may, it's not a magic wand. I know. It takes those two four-letter words that Christians hate, work and time. And it may take some time to heal those wounds. It may take some time to give you strength again. It may take some time to restore your spirit. But you know what? You could be merry again. Ask David. David went through a lot of bad stuff. In Psalm 30, you see David here just feeling it. He says at the end of verse 5, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Now this, he's saying, man, God, I'm never going down. I'm never going to falter, God. I'm never going to get weak. And in the next breath, thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. Not the Christian life. Mountaintop valley. When you're on the mountaintop, you never think you'd ever be in the valley. And when you're in the valley, you don't think you'll ever make it to the mountaintop. So God in the heart of your Bible put a character called David who goes like this, up and down and up and down. Why? To show you how real this is. And he says, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? He's begging God now. And he says, hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me, Lord. Be thou my helper. And what do you think he does? Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. David went through some things, but he kept crying out to God. And like a switch that God flipped, he said, God, you took my sadness and gave me a smile again. You took my mourning and you told me for dancing. It's like I could just jump up and leap again. Psalm 42, and then we're done. Here's my last verse. Psalm 42, verse 5. And here's David again, or the psalmist again. And he asked a question that some of you might ask. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? You ever talk to yourself? Just one of you. That's one honest man. (laughs) (laughs) we all talk to ourselves it's when you answer yourself that's when you got to get nervous but we all talk to ourselves why art thou cast down on my soul why art thou disquieted in me hope thou in God for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance oh my God my soul is cast down within me therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar he says even if you can't have a merry spirit today you got hope he says, you know what I remember God I'm gonna remember the land of Jordan you know where the land of Jordan is the lowest place on earth is the land of Jordan and he says I'm gonna remember you from the hill I'm going to remember, God, that you started your ministry in the lowest place on earth. Down by the Dead Sea, down by Jordan is the lowest place on earth. You know, Lord God, you finished your life on on a hill. 
You ended your work on a hill and you're coming back from those hills up there. So God, even when I can't feel it, even when my heart is breaking, I'm going to remember that God, you're the God of the lows and you're the God of the highs. You're the God of the valleys and you're the God of the mountains. And God, you're going to help me. You're going to help me. Because you went through all that, you're going to help me. And when you're filled with God's spirit, you get more than a buzz. You get hope above the sun. You get hope beyond anything this world can give you. So remember the words of Helen Keller, who is blind. Keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see a shadow. Keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see a shadow. And I know it's the holiday season. And whatever state your heart is in, mountaintop or valley, God is the same and God wants to help you. And I pray this was a blessing to you. Let's stand for prayer together. Let's pray.